morning! This is Brian Brushwood, host of Scam School Cord Killers and Hacking the System on Nat Geo, and you are listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future. <laughs> January 31st, 2023. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Student Driver. <laughs> We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. Student Driver, huh? Is it is the beginning of the year? Is it time to get out on the road? Steve, I just ask for patience. That's all I ask for. Those bumper stickers are really useful. Just as useful as the baby on board sign. Oh, now I'll stop intentionally ramming other cars. <laughs> film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Uh, hey, Chip, have you gone to the movie theater and seen a great film this week? Steve, I went to the Alamo Draft House oh. here in Raleigh. Oh. So of course, I went and I had a good time at the theater. It's a great place to see a film. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And you saw one of the great movies of 2022. This is The Fablemans. This is crazy because didn't this come, this come out around uh, Thanksgiving? This Yes, this was a, a late entry into 2022 looking for award season for sure. So I keep going and I see these films and they're on my list to see. But this film, I mean, it's still in theaters, interestingly enough, but it only has like one showing a day. And it's usually like 9.45 in the evening. So as you know, I, I mean, I'm asleep about that time, but I did tough it out and I went to see The Fablemans, Steve. So this is the semi-autobiographical story from Steven Spielberg, one of the great directors of the 20th century. So he he's wrote an autobiography about himself. And, uh, of course, there's probably plenty of liberties taken with this. Well, when you write your own story, you certainly highlight the good parts, don't you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And we all know, I mean, growing up, uh, as we have, Spielberg is as fun as they get no one got pop he was a blockbuster the reason why we have blockbusters is because of steven spielberg mm -hmm. well i shouldn't say that i mean we, we could camp planet of the apes or something like that but jaws jaws was... is the film that is credited with that term blockbuster people lined up around the block to watch that movie and certainly we want to just recognize that hollywood loves film about hollywood too yes they do we're looking at award season and a movie about making movies from one of the great movie makers might be a good movie for movie season exactly <laughs> so for as a person who grew up watching steven spielberg films this film has all the tropes of a steven spielberg film so what do we have we have this nuclear family we we have divorce in many of the families mm -hmm. um we have Children saying uh, things that make grown-ups laugh out loud because they're a little dirty. You've got a person who found himself very early on. Steven Spielberg was introduced to film when he went to a film. There's this scene um, where mom and dad are like, it's not real. We're going to our first movie. And he gets there and his eyes get great big. He's captivated by it. Mm -hmm. And... He is a boomer of boomers because he gets a Lionel 
uh, train set, um, you know, things are just popping at the time. Dad is the scientist of the family. He is uh, working on some computer stuff that will turn into, it sounds like home computers eventually. But mom is the artist. And mom's the pianist. And mom's a little flighty. And mom's a lot of fun. And dad loves being around mom hmm. because it makes him feel alive. But she is just suffocating in this. Hmm. And he, they're the family. It's it's brother and two sisters. Um, they move from New Jersey to Phoenix, from Phoenix to LA area. Um, Spielberg wrote a really enjoyable film. And he directed a masterclass on how to make films and I'm going to give you one more scene uh, before we I don't want to give it all away because any person who goes to see this will absolutely love it um, but he is a he's in the Boy Scouts throughout in the desert all of his buddies 20 of them have all gotten together they're going to be part of this film it's a war film everybody has died and he's trying to coach you know some 15 year old 13 year old whoever it is who is playing the sergeant or the, you know, um, of the platoon that everybody's been killed. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's coaching him. He's like, listen, you know, think about it. You've walked out and all of your team has died. And they're, you know, how do you feel about that? And stuff like that. And all of a sudden he is recording as, as the um, filmmaker, this kid going through all these emotions. And that's what a good filmmaker does. Hmm. So this is a fun film. It's probably Seth Rogen's greatest performance ever because he reeled him in a little bit. Okay. Um, but I think that what we're going to see is Michelle Williams, who plays the mom, uh, is going to win Best Actress. Okay. I, I think that. I do not think this is going to be, win Best Film. It could. It could. Um, but I do think that this is Best Actress. Um, I do think this is a interesting story, especially for any person who's gone through a, an entire catalog of Spielberg, like I have. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to say 80 out of 100, this is a fantastic film, and I recommend it. There's lots of people who are, are really cheering for this movie. The The Rotten Tomatoes score is 92% on this one. There's a lot of uh, nostalgia that goes into this from the post-World War II era all the way through to today. Steven Spielberg is an important part of so many stories. Uh, I remember seeing him for the first time in the Blues Brothers, my favorite movie of all time. And there's Steven Spielberg playing a part, being an actor in that silly, silly comedy. He has done so much. I, I look forward to seeing this one. Well, Spielberg is not known for being an actor. He's mm -hmm. known for being a director. And so, I mean, my goodness, have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark or Jurassic Park, Jaws, E.T.? <laughs> I mean, and then he just, you just go down. It's a list of blockbusters. Mm-hmm. And, and a childhood full of memories. Those are all the the pieces of my childhood that he was able to tell those stories. The, a great storyteller and a great director. I wonder if this is a Best Director uh, Oscar for him. It possibly could be. I, I Like you said, I, I think this is a great film. 
I do not think it's like in the top 10 of greatest films ever or anything like that. And let's not forget, Steven Spielberg also brought us the Animaniacs. So, uh, yes, I am a fan of Steven Spielberg's. What I'm also a fan of, Chip, is some bad movies. We've had this conversation so many times over the last eight years. You love great film and great storytelling, and I revel in the, the really, really arduous task of getting through really bad movies i watched for the first time and not the last birdemic three sea eagle that hit streaming this week all right well tell us about this steve this is James Wynn's latest, uh, trying his best, trying to make a film, trying to make a statement, a statement about climate change, a statement about how we can change the world, and doing it with the most wooden acting, terrible editing, and ridiculously bad special effects. Birdemic 3 uh, is, is 83 minutes of your life that you'll never get back. Uh, the community of people that watch... Mystery Science Theater 3000 and Riff Tracks know the original Birdemic, and we love watching that movie together, talking about it. Alan Baugh, friend of the show, who is Rod from the original Birdemic, is featured in Birdemic 3. He does not talk about solar panels. No solar panels in... <laughs> In Rod's conversations in this one, uh, James Wynn is just trying to be Alfred Hitchcock. He wants so badly to be Alfred Hitchcock that he goes to some of the locations that Hitchcock used in Southern California for this film and actually name drops Hitchcock in the location of one of Hitchcock's summer homes and gives us all of this background information on, on his love of filmmaking and then just doesn't deliver with this film this is a bad movie it's got 20 percent on rotten tomatoes uh i would i would recommend uh watching the first birdemic a couple more times before you watch birdemic three sea eagle well you, you maybe want to avoid that one too jeez <laughs> it sounds awful is this a documentary no, this is a film. This is a story movie with people walking around as woodenly as people can walk. Uh, we, One of the riffs in the original Birdemic was how Rod did not know how to walk. And every actor in this movie does not know how to walk. They are in the woods at one point and running from one lane to the other in the in this wooded area. And it doesn't make any sense. And uh, the birds come and attack as as they would want to do in a bird's uh, nostalgia piece. Uh, and Rod picks up a coat hanger that was on the beach and starts waving it at the birds. Of course he does. Just so you know, Alan Baugh uh, signs hangers. That's what he does because he, that's what he's known for is waving hangers at fake CGI birds. I love watching these movies. I love having the communication and the community with all of the people that love these bad movies and just shake our heads and go, nice try. Nice what, try. What, so what was the, the movie that we saw... The room. Wise, uh, the room. Okay. Tommy so Wise, the room. Yes. Is it like the room in the sense that it is, he's not self aware that he's not gifted? 
Yes, this is James Wynn is very much the other half of Tommy Wiseau, a foreign uh, born person living in California, trying his best to make it in the film industry and not being self-aware that he's not doing it well and and being very proud of his work. And so is this immediately going to like riff tracks or Mystery Science Theater? Well, the question... Is it made so that it's designed for riffing? That's the question that the community has raised about this one. Is is James Wynn actually making this for riff tracks? Is he knowledgeable that his air that he leaves in the dialogue can be space filled with jokes is he making this on purpose or is this just ineptitude that is a question that that has not been answered but yes this is very riffable i i certainly was adding my own dialogue to this movie while i was watching it well amazon prime certainly um i guess had the money to put towards it Mm -hmm. good for them The other streaming service that I'm going to highlight this week is Peacock. This is the Comcast Universal NBC streaming app. And they have a new show this week called Poker Face. This is a young lady who has the ability to determine when someone is lying. She is a a walking, talking lie detector. And she uses that power to play poker and gets caught lying face no her catchphrase her catchphrase is uh, uh a uh, inappropriate word that she uses to call somebody out on their lying and she uses that catchphrase constantly in this show this is a how catch em story this is not a who done it there's a murder that happens in every episode and then Natasha Leone, the the actor who plays Charlie, is set to find the murderer. But we, the audience, already saw the whole murder. We know what happened. She is then set to find out, and we go along with her on that ride. That might sound familiar to you. That is the storyline of Columbo from the 1980s. The idea of a detective who can find the answer through thinking and determining if somebody's lying. That seems much better than the previous one. And this <laughs> is on Peacock. Yeah, and this is Ryan Johnson, who is really making a name for himself in Murder Mysteries with the Knives Out series, the Glass Onion that we just saw. This murder mystery is going to be the next big thing i think uh those of us who remember colombo remember that gritty detective story this one adds the cinematography from ryan johnson the visual storytelling there's so many moments in this storytelling where there's no sound it's just visual medium and he's able to tell a story in such a wonderful beautiful way and so with this is it released one one episode a week is it um Is it the season come together? How does Peacock work? They released the first four episodes. They are full one-hour episodes, not 44 minutes, full-hour stories. And then they're going to release the rest of the 
10 episodes once a week on Peacock. And I, I look forward to seeing the rest of what they're able to do with this gritty detective and all these guest stars. Every episode has a great guest star. First episode was Adrian Brody. Second episode, John Ratzenberger and Hong Chow. Episode three, Lil Rel. And episode four, Chloe Sevigny. I look forward to my nostalgia trip and this new idea of ryan johnson giving us murder mysteries I, I i'm all in on this book it 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 to our book at our book of the week it is the end of the month and it is time to go to class professor pamela bador is here to teach us good morning pam good morning how are you guys fine we are ready fine. and prepared yes. <laughs> sure. what i like to hear that is for sure chip <laughs> <laughs> this month's book is light from uncommon stars by rika aoki published in 2021 and and we have to say before we get started pam's favorite book of 2022 as of december when we did our favorites show Yes, it really was. And of course, it was one that I had read just before the show. And you know, there's a little bias towards that. I felt like I read so many amazing books um, last year. But anyway, this is one that um, UConn, where I teach, has chosen as our UConn Reads book for this year. So I am super excited. Rika Aoki is coming to campus in April. We've been putting together questions for her. She's going to be meeting with students. She's going to be doing a big keynote. She's going to be doing a bunch of stuff. And so um, I'm teaching this in my class and I'm doing it with my book club at the library in a week from now. And I get to talk to you guys about it. So I'm going to be so interested to hear what you guys have to say and think through the multiple, multiple, multiple issues that this novel deals with. <laughs> we have demons. We have donuts. We have violin. <laughs> we have video As game music. <laughs> you guys it was so funny I went to a planning meeting for Yukon Reads before I had read the book so I come in and people are like okay so I think we need to create big paper mache donuts all over campus and have pop-up donut shops you know really just to build excitement and I'm like what are we talking about <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of an outlandish book if you don't if you haven't read it you're like what what is in this book? Um, even if you things? have read it, this is a pretty <laughs> outlandish book, my friend. This is a very, oh, wow. very intriguing story about a violin teacher, the world's best violin teacher, known for coaching virtuosos who meet tragic ends. She is uh, seeking a new student, and there's a whole demon story where she is contracted to deliver seven souls into the netherworld here. And we haven't even gotten to the donuts yet. <laughs> I mean, here's, here's the question for you guys. Does this book remind you of any other book? Or does it seem kind of like it's doing its own thing a little bit? I mean, if you take away a whole bunch of un unlayer, it's just a traditional story that's kind of got a little twist to it. I, I think it's really good. But I mean, it is a story of, uh, I don't know, there was a, a, a demon. The devil went down to Georgia. I don't know. Yes. 
I, that, uh, that went through my head many times in this the uh-huh. whole violin and devil went down to Georgia was definitely a part of that. Then we've got the the aliens. We haven't mentioned the aliens yet. The okay. aliens who are running a ship that is shaped like a donut shop that that reminds me of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where we get the yes. bistro that is the controls for the ship that makes the ship go. So I, we've got that piece in there. Wh- what else? What else should we be thinking of, Pam? And then for me, I mean, we open so sadly, tragically, with this kid who's running away from an abusive home. Mm-hmm and a transgender kid. So this feels like a coming of age story, a Bildungsroman about a kid who's transitioning in gender, but who's also transitioning from childhood to adulthood, who doesn't have any support systems around her, who is considering suicide, who's supporting herself through sex work. Katrina Wen's story is a really dark story. And, you know, she has her emergency bag, her spare glasses, her hormones, and her violin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the... Is this part autobiography? That's part of what I was going through. I was thinking about it. Like, is this this person's life? Yeah, so Rika Aoki, of course, is transgender. But actually, it was interesting. In an, in an interview with her, she just started learning violin kind of recently for fun. So she did, but I have to say, as someone who did do classical violin since I was seven and uh, who, you know, played in my university orchestra all the way through university and and who did a little teaching, I taught mostly piano, but I, I taught violin as needed. She really did her research. Mm-hmm. Like she, she captures, you know, the the beauty and the competitiveness of the music world like pretty amazingly i was stunned when she said oh yeah she's been taking some lessons it's been really fun <laughs> and then we get into the the whole world of the violin makers the builders of these beautiful instruments and and the the joy and the pain of how these instruments are created and repaired that's a whole piece of this story too <laughs> There's so many different the, things. The luthier, the luthier piece and Lucia Mateo and her family and their like family secrets. Um, one thing I found really fascinating is so if you do, if you play a solo instrument, any solo instrument, you come to really love your instrument. So that relationship between the player and the instrument is, you know, well, well documented. Um, It is an actual kind of love, the love you feel for your musical instrument. And so I loved when they go to the luthier's shop and she's like, okay, thanks. You'll leave your violin and I will give it back to you because you would never want the player to see you taking apart the violin, Mm -hmm. you know, pulling up the bridge. Like just that would just be horrifying. It'd be like watching, you know, a loved one have surgery. Yeah. Just open heart surgery for your loved one. (laughs) I work part-time in a music store where they teach violin lessons and piano lessons and all of that. And one of my coworkers repairs violins. And we've had some very interesting conversations about the intricacy, the the intimacy of the wood and how the wood reacts. And, And this story really gets into the heart of that feeling of, of how this magic of music music happens and affects people well that part was on how you know if you're going to repair an instrument sort of how they have to tear it down and rebuild it Hmm. and sort of 
how if you saw that you you would go like you're destroying it mm-hmm. but it's part of the repair what an interesting metaphor that <laughs> is for our characters here huh right well it's a metaphor of course for katrina wen who's drastically changing her own body as she's reaching adulthood and making that choice and having that fight with her parents and eventually deciding to to leave home but it's also sort of i think it's a it's a metaphor for like what are we going to do as a society now one of the questions that and i really genuinely want to hear your response to this but one of the questions that i've had for for everyone thinking about this novel is is this there's so many themes and genres right and so as one of my students said this is like wearing polka dots and stripes and all sorts of other things all at once right and so what you know we've got the trans coming of age story which includes domestic violence online and in real life prostitution lots of thinking about the lgbtq plus community including rifts in that community we have aliens who run a donut shop we've got a musician who made a deal with the devil We've got an AI who refuses to make a copy of herself. Um, We have a secret in the Luthier community, the end plague, which we haven't even talked about. An alien teen who can't control his anger and vaporizes people. We have all sorts of changing aesthetic and economic models for how we do music in the 21st century. And we talk about the narrative and the ethical potential of video games. And this is like a 400 page novel. So I wanted to stop you in the middle of that list, (laughs) but but I saw the list and you you didn't even include the change of what fame is in the 21st century. Celebrity culture, right? Yes. Yes, 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 exactly. So the question is, is this just too many topics to really process or do we live in a time when we have to constantly be processing way too many things at once are we in a time of cognitive overload and is this kind of novel just one way of both representing and helping us process that it's a i don't know the answer to that question but i love your perspectives i would love to hear the answer from the author because that was my (laughs) first thought at the beginning of this book she is throwing all of this at us uh donut shops aside what the heck is happening in the beginning of this book it's all just here's the story good luck and i really felt like that was a metaphor for our times for our thinking for what is happening in our existence i i think that's what she was headed for there what do you think chip we have a very noisy generation mm-hmm. there's so many things going on you're pulled in 10 different directions at any given time and i'm not sure 100 years ago i mean everybody had stress and stuff like that but you didn't have what's available mm-hmm. um and this is certainly uh i mean i think it represents that pretty well if you were going to make this into a movie <laughs> You certainly would not do this. You would end up picking one or two. I agree. Uh, I think that this you, would not make a good movie. But as a book, <laughs> you can do that. You can mm-hmm. kind of agreed throw things out and just uh, there's a lot going on. Yeah, we we didn't even get to the AI in our in our preamble to this conversation and all of the alien pieces and and the metaphor for illegal aliens versus alien aliens here uh so many things are happening in this book right and the different sort of power dynamics um that people experience across culture as well as gender and sexual identity as well as 
race and class. I mean, there's, you know, this, this book has a little bit of everything, but it's so funny. I don't know if you guys ever get into these conversations somehow, maybe as an apocalyptic scholar, I do, where you're talking to someone who's like, you know, and you're chatting about the climate crisis and different approaches or whatever. And then someone else walks in and is like, who cares? We're going to have a nuclear war way before we ever hit the climate crisis. And someone else walks in and says, oh, I actually think we're not even, we're going to get taken over by artificial intelligence before we get to nuclear war. Like these sort of like the pick your adventure apocalyptic Mm -hmm. endings that we're currently faced with. Yeah, it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to process. And and we've had so much conversation about AI in the last few weeks and the idea yes. of AI taking over some of our jobs, some of our our workflow, changing who we are and our dependence upon technology, which uh, we've had that conversation for decades. Uh it yes, all of those things are in this book along with all of these metaphors. But that, but that's I mean that's always happened though, technology has always changed, mm-hmm. and people have always been displaced. It's just I mean it's just part of it's part of life. Mm-hmm. I know you think to 1923, and people had so many of the same anxieties that we had. They had you know they had different technologies, but it was the same anxieties. And then you think, ooh, what is 2123 going to look like? It's, <laughs> you know, we feel like technology is constantly moving faster than it was before, but I don't know. I don't know. In 100 years, they went from, you know, uh, horse and buggy to landing on the moon. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And everybody's got a car now. I shouldn't say everybody, but many people on the West have a car now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's amazing. I know. I actually, for some reason, looked up the number of vehicles in the U.S. and it's 275 million. I'm like, that's almost one per person. And a lot of the people are kids. Like, that means a lot of people have two cars, right. a lot of drivers. Anyway, yes, that is a very good point. Um, <laughs> so, But it's interesting that the AI in this novel is, I don't think, in any way constructed as someone who might take over, but really someone whose personhood needs to be protected. I mean, Shirley is you know, Shirley is constructed as Lon's daughter and she's even shaped from the biological material of Lon's daughter who never made it to maturity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a, and you feel like AI, like Shirley's rights need to be protected rather than her being some sort of threat. How and very she's a, Star she's Trek. A, Right, surely, I know. Surely you can't be serious. Oh, Jeff, thank you for that. <laughs> no, Jeff, <laughs> can I go back to your question about making a movie? I think you'd have to make a TV show out of this. It's way too long for a movie, no matter how much you cut. But could I go back to that question? Because, boy, I had a fun conversation with my students. And by the way, this is the first time in a long, long time that I'm teaching all students who are traditional age, like 18 to 24, I might be the only person in the room who even existed in the 20th century. So um, I don't, I I always have a few non-traditional students. Professor, can you tell us again about the late 1900s? (laughs) Or like, were you alive on September 11th? Yes, I was. Um, So, so anyway, um, it was so interesting talking about this book, because I think this book is 
very much a generational book, which I want to talk to you guys about. But we got into the greatest conversation about making this into an adaptation, probably a TV show. And students were really, really adamantly against it. Hmm. Now, as a group, they love this book. It's been a long time since I taught a book where everyone totally loved it. And I think that's generational. I feel like I go to book club a week from now and it's going to be a mixed bag. But these kids were like, this is one of the best novels I've ever read. And some of them said that as they're reading, they think of Katrina Wen as this petite, cute little girl was a quote from one of the students in the class. And they forget as they're reading that her body is very difficult for her. She does have really big hands. Sometimes she doesn't shave quite close enough. And of course, the way she's viewed by the outside world. I mean, that oh, the very early, early um, as she's running away and those women are like too ugly to be a girl. Mm-hmm. Is that a girl or a boy? Too ugly to be a girl. And so they said that forgetting the physical realities of her body is a beautiful part of the novel for them and then being reminded forgetting reminded forgetting and you couldn't do that in an adaptation because you know the character would be visible at all times and you as a reader wouldn't be able to enter her interiority Mm. and forget her body I was like kind of compelled by that argument I don't know what you guys think I certainly had that experience of this writing where where I forgot about her origin and 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 included her as a she in this story she is doing these things she is happy she is enjoying what she's experiencing and then the author is very good at every once in a while reminding us oh by the way this is maybe not the way she is perceived by the rest of society that message is very strong uh we we all have in our lives those kids that don't fit into that classical definition of of gender especially in 2023 and how we treat those people is incredibly important and i think the author is very good at giving us that message that lesson here so this story is very much of that generation that you're teaching right now Mm -hmm. yeah so it's not of older generations this is sexual identity is like the thing for a large group of of uh, young people of, of Gen Zs, and it's just just part. So all of a sudden, it becomes very important to them. Mm-hmm. Even though, is it so important to the story? This story could have been written without that. But it have though. I mean, I feel like you know what. I mean, Katrina's relationship to her instrument and to music and to the public is very very much rooted in her experience of unacceptance don't you think i mean you could could have written that any other way though it's written very today like what what a young person today right it's it, it feels is very important exactly 
if this had been written in a different time, maybe it would have been about her race instead of gender. And that's where we're at a lot of times. Is, or or is religion or, or hair color. Or... That makes us different and, and makes us make a choice of who we are. And she does have that intersectional identity, too, as an Asian. I thought it was so interesting. I love how she sets up so beautifully right in the running away scene, which is really only like eight or ten pages in the novel. Um, and so much is established there. You know, she uses the Asian bus that most people don't even know about. She goes to the mall, and you know. So in The Fablemans, it was very nice, you know, as a, a Gentile, as a person who, who's grown up as a... Uh, a very Christian area to kind of get thrown into a Jewish family uh-huh. just to see other dynamics. This book is very good. You get thrown into um, this Asian California lifestyle mm-hmm. and you get like, you get a little glimpse of what it's like to be this, this person. When the same, when, when if someone ever says, Oh, I couldn't understand what it's like to be in whatever group, I could just pick up a book. Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> and they will give you this insight. And it's beautiful. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, that's, that was the, um, I think that's what made the, um, the entrance into the story as compelling as it is, as this person's going through all these feelings. But at the same time, you're like exploring this Asian California lifestyle. And the donut shop. <laughs> that well, really <laughs> focuses on violin prodigy. I mean, I know it's... <laughs> and the ducks. Don't forget the ducks, you guys. <laughs> Your list keeps getting longer and longer. <laughs> I think that making an adaptation of this would be interesting. I think you would have to compartmentalize some of these thoughts. You would have to have an episodic feeling of, okay, this episode is about the donut shop. This episode is about the violins. And then by the end of the story, merging it all together, what the author's done here at the beginning of this story is literally thrown us in. We have to find our way through all of these different stories to get to the, the real message. And it's actually, she does go from, I mean, she has four main characters who are perspective characters. I mean, she she even has a couple more occasionally, but I would say like, we've got Katrina's perspective and story. We have Shatomi's um, as this elderly violin teacher who looks gorgeous 30 year old, but is actually, that was 49 years ago, my friends. Um, We've got Lantran, the, um, the alien donut shop, owner and then we have Lucia Mateo the luthier and so when you guys were reading did you have that feeling like oh good this is the story I'm most excited about as you move from story to story if so which was that one for you which was the one you could connect to and why the one I connected to the most was the donut shop and the whole okay. Star Trek <laughs> metaphor. Star Trek, Star Trek the, it's the so Star Trek. They, <laughs> they are I using Star Trek terminology, the gravitons, the power conduit, the replicators. And 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 they the author actually calls out her own metaphor. It says, is this like Star Trek? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. She yes. says. <laughs> Just like that. Exactly. <laughs> How about you, Chip? I just followed the main story. Her uh, her, her journey is basically the one I, I was going for. I'm so which main story? Story. Katrina's or Shatomi's? The, the um, Katrina's. The, the, uh, Katrina's, yeah. I think Shatomi's was really interesting too, right? Yes. Trying to sort of rethink 
like being forced to rethink so many of her assumptions. And that's where I felt like her perspective really talked about generations. And I think all three of us know this because we work a lot with teens and young people um, in a variety of ways. And it's like, they do see the world differently than we do. And so kind of thinking through those generational divides, it's really powerful, I think. And we are all middle age and we deal with our older parents as well. So yes, we think about that all the time, that generational divide. I don't know how much our parents understand our kids with that generational divide, that, that change in who we are as people. And even when it comes to like violin prodigy, so this expertise in violin. So when you're thinking about what is like classical training and sorry for me, this hit a little closer to home just because I have the background in it, like the Shradiak versus the Suzuki method, the different classical, you know, approaches to learning violin. I just loved that Katrina, who's mostly self-taught had taken like whatever, a couple of lessons at school. Um, you know, she just has this whole different music that she's interested in. And she brings in gaming music and anime music. And she also has a different model of music economics, right? Using YouTube and publishing videos in a really different way. But then in the end, she goes to Bartok, mm-hmm. one of the like one of the most difficult pieces ever written, which I think wow, Aoki describes how that piece is written just gorgeously. And so she she has this respect for, but also this respect for tradition, but also this sort of new idea of how we face the world today. It's a different world. Not only in how she learns music, but how she sees the, the end game of her study of music. We see how... You know, she says, I don't want to make a deal with the devil to win contests. That's not what I want. But what she wants is clicks and likes on YouTube. That's where she goes as that is her measure of success. Which is a great point to bring up that please like and subscribe. (laughs) 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 that's the world we're living in (laughs) i just watched a um interview with ann wilson from hard and she was she's the singer so so we know and she's got this incredible voice and she had i can't remember she had something where she had to stay home for a year from school and her mom bought her guitar and she kind of played around with it and she was getting it down but her sister nancy came in and would take the guitar from her and it just was very natural for her so nancy plays guitar and it's very natural where it was a lot of work for Anne to kind of get these things down and that's why she's the singer versus i think that there are people who naturally have a gift of noodling or however they want to say it Um, And I also was reminded of Michael Jackson, who could not read music, but would basically beat like um, into a uh, microphone and um, he would hand it over and the musicians would write the music for him. Mm -hmm. And that's why his music is, I would say, very different than the the music of the contemporaries for him. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, once you learn the language of music, Maybe you are constricted because you know the language of delivery. Hmm. 
And um, being an outsider may give you that, um, I don't know, unique sound, a unique feel, a different way of approaching something. Yeah, I love that story. And this sort of idea of like, you bring something new, but then you're also melded by things that other people have done. Mm -hmm. The sort of idea of um, just the power of aesthetics, the power of art, right? To to capture something, but also to change people. And one of my favorite scenes in the book was when, you know, we, the reader, know that Shatomi has made this deal with the demon Tremont. And we know that she has, she is intending to sell Katrina's soul. But then when she's like, oh my gosh, I should have, I should have told her sooner. Like we're now like in this really close teacher student relationship. How am I ever going to tell her? And when she does go to tell her, Katrina's like, did you honestly think I didn't like read the internet about you? Of course, I know you made a deal with the devil. Everyone knows that. Um, Anyone who's paying attention would know that. You really think I thought I was going to get something for free? And she says, "Um, did Miss Satomi really think that she believed she was being taught for nothing? If being queer had taught her anything, it was that there was always a price. And for Katrina, who had been on the brink of suicide when we met her, you know, she's like, hey, I'll take it. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not afraid. She's already been hurt in so many ways. She's just not afraid of hell. Well, it speaks to this generation and how resourceful they are. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this generation, because of the, the information they have access to, yeah. they can research and they they have they may have access access on a much faster and deeper level than previous generations, you know, in 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 a past time. You know, people who were 29 and below, there was this thing called the library, and you had to go pull out the card mm-hmm. and go look up the book, and the book was printed five years ago or 10 years ago. And so the information you had on something could be even dated at that point, Mm -hmm. even if you could find something on it. But this generation can also just not go in depth on any thought because they are just analyzing it on a shallow level because all of that information is out there. It's just trivia to them on so many levels so often. But that's because it has no interest to them. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are being forced to study something because you're forced to study something, and you'll put the level on it. But if you have something that you're really interested in, you can go the deep dive as quickly as you want to. And I think this novel really represents how very, very, very many things are competing for our interest at all times and for the interest of young people at all times. And I think it's not only topics or themes that are competing, but also ways of knowing. You guys know me, my favorite word is epistemology, how we study knowledge, how we think through knowledge. And I think this novel is really interesting because as soon as, first of all, it feels like coming of age novel, then we realize that the donut shop is owned by aliens. So we're like, oh, this is going to be a science fiction book. Mm-hmm. And then we realize there's a deal with the devil. Oh, that's more like a fantasy book. And that idea of science fiction and fantasy just residing super comfortably next to each other. I mean, that's comfortable for young people. I think we sometimes, and yes, I can only speak for myself, yes. we want to have our science fiction and fantasy as two separate genres, but that's just not, that's not how it is anymore. 
That, so tell us about how no they're two separate genres, uh, Star Wars, Steve. That, uh, <laughs> I know. I know I know that I say things like, I don't like fantasy, and you bring up Star Wars and Doctor Who. But I still think back to our conversation that we had where we saw that historic melding of science fiction and fantasy and how that was just because publishers didn't know what to do and put them together. The more logical is the whodunit, the mystery novel and science fiction. Yes. Think back to that. Robert J. Sawyer. When we talked to Robert J. Sawyer, he talked about that. And I thought mm-hmm. that was very compelling. But I think that today we are mixing those ways of knowledge, right? We are mixing those ways of knowing. Things we don't understand could be supernatural or they could just be technology we don't know yet. Whichever. <laughs> it's true, but it's 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 how we work with information though. It's you know, it's just when I say this generation, over the last hundred years, we do things so differently than they did for, I don't know, 10,000 years before. So now there were a lot of female characters in this novel. And this was so this was so funny to me when my students brought this up to me. And I was like, oh, I hadn't even noticed, which is really bad. Because <laughs> I always notice that there are no female characters. Mm-hmm. And I didn't notice how few male characters are in this novel. Did you guys really notice that? It did not occur to me. It did not occur to me. I was I was perfectly fine with all of the interactions with all of these people, regardless of gender, because we're talking about changes in gender, because we're talking about who you are is your decision. It's not about what anybody else's perception takes. I just I didn't really think about it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So it took some of my students to make me notice it. So I'll be very curious as as I talk to different people about it, you and, know. And that might be a generational thing. That might, might. Be, these these three middle aged people on this podcast didn't notice gender because gender was there, and we didn't didn't need it. Interesting. So. There's lots of great quotes. We have a whole document full of our favorite oh, quotes yes. <laughs> here. Uh, I'll start with one of mine. Uh, she had never encountered a planet that invested so much technology into communication. It is stunning to me to think how much science is around communication on Earth in 2023. 100%. I love that quote so, so much. And don't you feel like part of what's wonderful about that quote is the optimism about it. We always think about the negatives of humans. We're greedy and corrupt and, you know, power hungry and whatever. But this notion that we really, really invest in our communications with others, it really brings up something awesome about us too. Agreed. Well, that, that would be the economist recognizes that we always have invested in each other. Hmm. And it's very natural. It's just, it's part of human nature. Mm-hmm. Do you have a a favorite quote, Pam? I might have one or two small favorite quotes. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a little darker than where I sometimes go. But when Katrina is doing her, she's in Chitomi's house and she's doing online prostitution and she gets caught. And so she's thinking she's packing up her bags. She's thinking I'm kicked out. Miss Satomi, aren't you angry? Katrina asked. Of course not. You have no idea what has been done in the service of music. 
However, Katrina, with your talent, you have choices. There are a lot of different ways to f on camera or on stage. Find a way that goes beyond a one night stand, one that makes you larger than life. At least find one that pays better. Is that what you did, Miss Satomi? Katrina, I drive a Jaguar. Wow. And that's the whole scene. <laughs> and I feel like my students and I had so much fun playing through that scene. This sort of idea of like, what makes up celebrity and makes up art, right? To when do those, when do those intersect? When are they the same? When are they not the same? And then also like, what's Miss Satomi saying when she says, Katrina, I drive a Jaguar. Is she saying like, what do you think? How do you think I got here? Right. To this like beautiful, you know, house on the hill um, with all the tangerines in the neighborhood. So, I mean, I just thought that was a really, I don't know, both pragmatic, but also sort of empowering scene for Katrina, who's finding total acceptance here for the first time in her life. And we haven't talked about the performance art part of this story, how beautiful the author is able to give us this image of how performance art is so engaging for the artist, even more than for the audience. And yes, the the, the whole online sex part is, is a, a metaphor there, but when she gets to actually being on stage and performing and getting past her fear of that performance, she is engaging with that audience on a level that is just so wonderful that I I enjoyed that part of the story even more than the donut shop. Oh, interesting. So you did, Steve. Okay. I love that. There's a lot of stories that, that talk about that. The person, they're a bad person off stage. They've got their flawed or whatever that thing is they had. They get on stage and they're magic and they connect on a whole different level. And I think that is, yeah, if you want to say it's a trope, but it is kind of a trope. Mm -hmm. That idea, that metaphor of leaving your soul on stage was really touching because we are talking about a, a situation where a demon is taking a soul and then we have this moment where she puts it out there on stage and leaves it there. That's <laughs> a beautifully written metaphor. I, it comes with one of my favorite quotes. Playing the violin isn't always easy, but it's easier than everything else we see how difficult it is for her to get to the level where she is, you know, feeling comfortable with herself and with being on stage. And that's not easy, but it's easier than everything else. That's uh that's a good metaphor for life. Absolutely. And have you guys ever taken like violin lessons at all? I've never played the violin. Uh, I did marching band with the clarinet family in high school. And uh, the experiences of that, that that performance art certainly stuck with me. Uh, yes, I went to stage acting uh, instead of playing right. music. <laughs> but I, I, I still see that performance for sure. Because the violin's very, very hard compared to, say, the piano um, where all the notes are right there. Like you have to find the notes. You don't have frets like on a, a guitar or any of the guitar family. With the Bartok piece, 
you have to find the space between the notes, the quarter tones. And so I I really love that she's like, you know, it's easier than all the rest. Yeah, for like 0.05% of the population it is, right? It's, um, it's extremely difficult, but it's still, you know, if you are captured by it, you're captured. Mm-hmm. So like most books, Pam, there's an ending to this one. Surprise. <laughs> It's it's the favorite part. <laughs> I often have people read a whole book for like Tuesday's class, but here I've really spread it out uh, across four classes so we can like specifically think about the month of February, March, then April, May. And so, cause this book takes place over one year. And so we, we've really divided it. And so students really are having so much fun trying to picture how this novel ends. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, is Katrina going to go to hell? What does that look like? Um, does the Shatomi sacrifice herself? That's one of the things. Does Shizuka run away with, with, with Lan? Do they go off? Do they somehow escape the curse? So the question of how the curse will end is really, really fascinating. But I do think that the way this novel ends, for me, Sorry, this is probably too personal, but this really brings me, this novel and its ending really bring me back to me being an undergrad. I feel like it sort of captures that part of your life. And I'll say, so when I was an undergrad, I didn't choose a major until my fourth year. And so, you know, I sometimes see those kids on my list, right? We call it ACES, Academic Center for Exploratory Studies. When I was a kid, we called it undecided yeah. do you guys remember that it wasn't even undeclared no, 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 no. It was I, I can undecided. see it and you've <laughs> got to get out of here let's look at what you've taken <laughs> exactly you guys i had taken an equal number of courses and i always overloaded so i had tons and tons of credits and i did very well in my credits i loved school but i had taken an equal number of courses in english french and music and I went to Canadian University, way, way, way more credits needed for a major. And so you really, double majoring wasn't a thing back in the day for me. So I really, really had to decide. So I took this course. It was a modernist literature course. And I read, we read, um, we had to do presentations. And I had a poem by Wallace Stevens, Peter Quince at the Clavier. And we had to do a presentation And so I was reading this poem. It's so beautiful. I'm sorry, I am going to read you guys just a couple sentences of it. But I was also reading, I was also learning a Debussy piece in my piano performance class. And I was like, oh my God, these two things really, really go together. And I went to the library and I found a list. This is a journal in the back of the library of all of the recordings that Wallace Stevens owned. And I went through it. And my piece was on his list. And so I I actually did a performance. Like for so my presentation, I recorded the piece and read the poem over it. And you guys, like they fit perfectly. Mm. And the poem, it just starts. I'll just redo the little first little bit, but you guys, it's so beautiful. Just as my fingers on these keys make music, so the self-same sounds on my spirit make a music too. Music is feeling then not sound. And thus it is that what I feel, da, 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 da. It goes on and on. And in the end of the poem, it sort of comes back to this big question. Beauty is momentary in the mind, the fitful tracing of a portal, 
but in the flesh, it is immortal. The body dies, the body's beauty lives. And so this is a poem that talks about the power of music. And the day I did that presentation, and like, it was one of the, you know, it was a class presentation, but everyone was totally paying attention. And everyone was like, oh my God, that music is exactly that poem. Whoa, that's crazy. And that's when I decided to become an English major. And then of course, I did more and more and more and more English. But that idea that you can say in words what you feel in music. And I feel like when I got to the end of this novel without spoiling it, like that's where I was left. Mm -hmm. Like I just read these 400 pages and listened to the audiobook, and it was music. It was words, but it was music and it was magical. So that's how I felt at the end. And the fact that we used the audiobook and the performance of these words certainly adds to that metaphor as well, because the performance versus the writing of a novel, very much a different feeling. I'm going to say the person who read this story has such a great reading voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, it lends itself to speed reading. Absolutely. She's fantastic. She, she is a master. Some people who read, you know, if you try to speed it up a little bit, it gets all garbled. She was incredibly clear. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know how you do that. That is a that is a special skill. Yes, it really is. And we keep hearing that, oh, pretty soon, don't worry, we're going to have computers to read everything to us. Um, but, but I don't know. I feel like this book is really welcoming of new technologies and thinking about how no, we're not going to give up on amazing narrators. We're going to figure out ways to blend new technologies and the incredible power and talent that humans have. The narrator's name is Cindy Kay. She is a Chinese Thai American narrator and educator from California's Bay Area. (laughs) I love that. Of course she is. The perfectly cast narrator for this novel. (laughs) (laughs) So the ending uh, certainly went, took one of the stories and, and, found a way to match it up with the other stories in such a wonderful way. Do we want to read the last lines or is it spoilery? You know, I'm always, I always think we can read the last lines. Let's do this. Our engines begin to hum. We surge as only lovers can. We go, we come, we begin. That's, there's, there's so much science fiction there. There's so much, uh, emotion to that idea as only lovers can the the romance of this story the romance of the idea of space travel the romance of the idea of alien life there's so much going on in that small little piece of this book i'm I'm gonna have to bring this up because i it just as we were reading this as it reminded me as i was reading this i kept visioning colors in my head Mm. while reading this how about that Mm. and pinks and and blues and and purples and and stuff like that i don't know if it doesn't happen all the time when i was reading i I kept picturing light and Um, do you think that's partly because there was so much food also in the novel right there mm -hmm. were all those tangerines and there was such clarity with colors 
of all of the foods. And so she's really like opening up our entire sensorium. So even though we're doing a lot of, you know, imaginative listening, we also are sort of heightened in terms of scent, in terms of food. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it, it was just fascinating. So this book was, and when I say an easy read, it, it was not a challenging read. It was just a lot of information. I, I was challenged by the amount of information, by the different storylines, the flip-flopping, especially in the beginning. It, it was a challenging read for me to get through all of the ideas and put them together into one cohesive story. So l- let me be blunt. When I think challenging, I'm thinking of like Tolkien's like Lord of the Rings, where you go through like, I don't know, 10 hours worth of backstory mm-hmm. to get down to somebody's brother's, sister's, husband's <laughs> elf friend who is a dwarf. You know, it's just like, oh, my God, yeah. please. Oh, what I is remember that guy, Chip. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why do people start and stop that all the time? Well... <laughs> <laughs> and then why do people read that over and over again? Because he, I don't know if you're trying to get it down. There's a good question. Down. Is this something that is rereadable? Could we go through this again and get a different experience from all of this data all being thrown at us as the author gives? So I actually reread it to talk to you guys. Um, so, cause I had read it in November and then, um, yeah, I actually, I never reread books this close together, but because there was so much, I wanted to reread it. It was very different the second time through. Such a pleasure. So I, if you enjoyed it the first time, I think you could very much enjoy it a second time because there's so many things you miss from just the trying to, the the dissonance mm-hmm. of not understanding how everything fits together. So I loved it as a reread. That is kind of what I figured when I asked yeah. that question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I I think that we can successfully say that this was a very good book, Pam's favorite book of 2022. And we can successfully say that anyone interested in, oh boy, uh, read the list again, Pam. What were the (laughs) 23,000 things that were in this book? There's so much, there's so much for everybody in this book. I I think that we can successfully say that, that we can suggest this book to a, a wide audience. That's Light from Uncommon Stars, published in 2021 by Rika Aoki. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. You know, beginning of the show, Chip, you mentioned that you went to the Alamo Draft House in North Carolina. You know, one of the things that is really terrible about Alamo Draft House is they don't have a location in Chicago. Not true. False. False. There is an Alamo Draft House in Wrigleyville. It opened on Friday. Uh, what? How about that? Surprise! There's a new uh, favorite place in the universe for me to go. I really want to find time to get downtown Chicago, go to the Alamo Draft House, and experience experience film from the way that they are giving that presentation. There's so much enjoyment about the Alamo Draft House. There's usually a bar with like, I don't know, like a hundred different beers there. There is an area outside where you can sit where they'll have, I don't know, trivia or Mm. people working. They've got really good food. So you can, you know, order a a, a pizza or order, you know, a hamburger or a chicken salad or something like that. So they have really good food there. In addition, they've got this beautiful presentation. 
So around the the theater, as you're sitting in it, waiting for your movie to start, they've got all these old-timey movies. In fact, the, the one I had for The Fableman was, had, had a total buildup of things that are referenced in the movie as old commercials, like yes. old movies uh, trailers, old old commercials commenting on something that gets shown in the movie. It's it's joyous. It, it's a celebration of film. Mm-hmm. So I look forward to this. And you know, Steve, what could be more Chicago than Shermer, Illinois? There ain't no Shermer in Illinois, but yes, this particular Alamo draft house in Wrigleyville has a John Hughes tribute motif, all sorts of little fun, little reminders of the films of John Hughes in this theater. Well, life moves pretty fast, Steve. Yes, it does. It certainly does. Speaking of Austin, Texas, where the Alamo Draft House started, our friend Brian Brushwood, his show Hacking the System, which was on the National Geographic channel, is now on Disney Plus. How interesting. And the idea of trying to find what you mm-hmm. want to watch. Anyway, good for him. How lovely. Yeah. Maybe he has a podcast about where to watch what you want to watch. We should we should check that out. Cord Killers is the name of that podcast. <laughs> University of Arkansas system is quite possibly going to buy the University of Phoenix. So University of Phoenix is one of the for-profit universities that were set up. Um, They certainly benefited by the student loan uh, issues. They had a bunch of scandals, as a lot of the for-profit schools did. Mm -hmm. And at the peak in 2010, they had about 470,000 students. In 2021, they had about uh, 79,000 students. So certainly not as popular as it was. The University of Arkansas, their system, which would include Arkansas and Little Rock and all the other schools, um, is I'm, I'm assuming trying to buy the technology to move at least a branch of their university online. Maybe very similar to how Purdue bought Kaplan and they moved their graduate school. They, they have a graduate school that's online. You can find it under uh, Purdue Global. And hmm. so this is... Very interesting. I mean, it's just sort of a one of those things to look out for. I'm waiting for Google or Microsoft or Apple to buy actually university. Interesting. That w- that would be an intriguing switch. Education is certainly going through some changes, and uh, I look forward to seeing what what will happen with these situations. Mm-hmm. You found an article, an opinion piece in the New York Times about a novel called American Dirt and what happened with its publishing and the publishing industry uh, being increasingly eager to appease potential cancelers. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. This is a book that Stephen King really liked. Uh, it became an Oprah book of the month type of uh, story. And then, uh, but the story, the, the story under the story is not what this book's about. It's that the publishing industry is looking to, I don't know, appease potential cancelers. Hmm. So for whatever reason is out there, uh, you know, the written word is the written word. And if it can be sold, um, that certainly is finding a market. But if you're constantly having to deal with protests, you've got public relations issues. Mm-hmm. And imagine you are trying to take on a book that potentially is going to have challenges. And how interesting. I mean, it seems very 1984-ish. You you certainly 
no one likes hate speech or anything like that, but certainly uh, we want to live in a world, a liberal society that mm -hmm. allows people to publish it. At least you either buy it or you don't, but you know, having to deal with counselors outside your office or online or anything like that is really um, challenging. Seems very un-American, that idea of free speech. You should be able to voice your opinion and your thought, and and you can, but if it doesn't get published, then then what? If the outlet is not available to you, mm -hmm. then they will find alternatives. And those alternatives are not always good for anybody. Mm. It's uh, some issues going on with with speech in the 21st century that are uh, nerve-wracking. Well, free speech doesn't mean you have to listen to it. There you go. There's it's... the most important thing to remember mm -hmm. is allowing someone to say something that you don't believe means that at least you know the ideas could get out there, but you don't have to believe them and you don't have to listen and you don't have to, to actually stand there and be part of it. You can actually just go away and ignore it. Or change the channel. Yes, sir. Very much. I agree with that completely. We've got the 30th anniversary of the movie Groundhog Day coming up this week. Happy Groundhog Day to all those who celebrate. It's like deja vu every year, Steve. It's like, it's like we've already talked about this, Chip. It's like we went out to Woodstock, Illinois, where that film was, was made, and we've been there and done that. In fact, I was just out there a few weeks ago. But were you visiting Ned Ryerson for some insurance, Steve? <laughs> Ned? Ned Ryerson? I still love that. Film. <laughs> 1993, 30 years ago, celebrating its 30th anniversary this year in Woodstock. Uh, happy Groundhog Day. Also coming up this week, we have the... Athletics, Steve. We have athletics coming up. <laughs> the 19th annual Krispy Kreme Challenge takes place this Saturday, February 4th at the Bell Tower at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina. 12 donuts, five miles, one hour, Steve. And this year, you know, with COVID, you can go do it in person. For the in last couple of years, they had to go and they had to do it virtually. Come and eat 12 donuts and then run and, and see what happens. Oh, no, 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 no. You run half of it. Okay. Then you eat the 12 donuts. <laughs> and then you race back to the bell tower, which was started by some college students, Steve late one night where I'm sure they had a few beverages and they said, you know, what would really make tonight great would be to go get some donuts. And then they, they ran to the, um, they ran to the Krispy Kreme. And so for 19 years, this is a charity, by the way, they've raised money for the children's hospital. So, I mean, what better way to do that than, uh, I don't know, get sweaty and uh, sugar up. It sounds like so much fun. It sounds like like a really interesting, fun afternoon watching people and uh, understanding humanity a little bit. Well, Steve, let's just say there may not be a lot left in the stomach by the time you get back. That's the nicest way to put that, for sure. Let's go. Let's go get some donuts. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's run back. No, I don't know. Sure that's the best idea. And as the students of Duke and North Carolina schools also in the area point out. This takes place at NC State. It doesn't take place on their campus. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a difference between the, the the student bodies of those schools, huh? Let's just say the engineering school said this is okay for them to do it. 
there you go celebrate whatever you're celebrating this week it is the end of january coming up on february time to celebrate steve we want to thank professor pam for coming in and we read light from uncommon stars that was a lot of fun it's always fun pam come in and give us knowledge and guess what she gets to put up with us for another month yes sir our february book for our book club is the pale blue eye by lewis bayard it is a fun murder mystery involving edgar Allan poe and a little bit of sherlock holmes just for fun ah watson ah we will solve that crime using all of our skills next month I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think so. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is TooMuchScrolling.com. Our email is TooMuchScrolling at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Student Driver. Be patient. We'll see you in the future. Just ask him for patience. That's all I need.